Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. There we go. I unmuted my mic. Um, I didn't think about this two weeks ago when I was with you. Uh, Scott and Jen were giving the announcement about the pasta dinner. Uh, it reminded me, and it took me back to a chili cook-off activity that used to happen at the church I was a part of in Warsaw. And I was in student ministries there for about seven years. And every spring, we would have our main fundraiser for missions, uh, short-term missions or missionaries, whatever it might be. And uh, we saw desserts go for thousands of dollars. Yeah, I'm not kidding. And so everybody would bring their pot of chili, and everybody would walk around, and we'd sample chili, and then there'd be awards given, and you would get like the golden spatula or spoon if you were the best tasting chili or the hottest chili. You know, you'd get some heartburn medicine or whatever that might be. But then there'd be this dessert auction, and we saw desserts go for thousands of dollars. And what we ended up doing was just figuring out how to have the most fun with it as possible. And so what we ended up doing then is the way we worked that out was we would get into like teams and we'd get a team of 12 people to all pool their money together to bid on a cheesecake. And so at the end of the at the end of the victory if we even got it like the the slices are just paper thin. But it was the most expensive cheesecake I had ever bought. So gosh darn it, it was the best tasting cheesecake that I had ever bought as well. And it was just a lot of fun to see God use that activity, just the generosity of his people in that type of atmosphere um, to just send people to missions and on missions and on short-term trips. And um, so when, when I hear pasta dinner and dessert auction, my mind goes back to like, Let's get 12 people together, and let's get $2,000 put around the table, and let's start bidding on a cheesecake. And then, like, we know the group over there has probably got 2100 So, like, where are we going to come up with the short that we've got? And so uh, have fun with that. Uh, I, I'm just excited for you guys and what God's doing in your midst. And um, as we open up God's Word to, tonight and think through what He says to the church in Sardis— um, it's interesting. I'm also taken back to a couple games that I used to play when I was a kid. Um, one was called, um, well, it's probably actually called a name that I probably shouldn't say um, because we're live and all of those kind of things. But let me describe the game for you and see if any of you had a similar experience as I did. Um, we'd be on the playground and we'd have a football and you were supposed to tackle the person with the football. And then they would get rid of the football, and then they would try to run away, and you would try to smear the person with the football. Um, my, it turns out just a couple weeks ago, my boys were at some friend's house, and we were all there as families, and they just happened to pick up this game. We never taught them the game. We never show them pictures or any of that of us playing the game from our childhood. Um, but they came in and they were all excited and like, dad, you'll never guess what we're doing. Like, like when Luke's got the ball, we all try to tackle him and then he fumbles it and, did it, and then I picked it up and everybody was trying to tackle me. And we're like, buddy, do you know what that's called? That's called smear the guy with the ball. That's what that's called. It's smear the guy with the ball. 
And it was one of those moments where it was like, this is a different day and age right now than it was when I was in second and third grade elementary school. And and, um, as I think about Sardis, I think back to some of these games we used to play on the playground. And I also think of King of the Hill. And the way you played King of the Hill was when they shoveled all the snow into a big pile. You tried to be the first one to get to the top of the pile, and then you tried to not give up your ground. And you were the king of the hill. And like you're, you're kicking and you're pushing. Like I have no idea why they let us play these games, but we did. And that's what we did at recess time. And that's how we spent our time. And quite frankly, Sardis as a group and as a city and as a people and as even a reputation were the champions at king of the hill. They were the best at king of the hill because they founded their city on the top of a hill. And we've got some pictures to show you of where Sardis was originally founded. Um, right at the top there, it, it's not a real image of where the Grinch lives. It's actually Sardis, and that's Mount Tolmis, and I'm virtually certain I've mispronounced that. But they founded their city at the top of this hill, and they were the kings on that hill. In several hundred years before Jesus writes this letter, this postcard, if you will, to Sardis, he is writing to a city that had tremendous, tremendous prominence. It was one of the greatest cities in the world, historians tell us. It was initially inhabited at the top of this hill. It had a profound military advantage because of that. And the the next two pictures, the guys can just kind of go through as they will. It's the same hill, just from some different vantage points. And so there you can see the sheerness of the face of it. Uh, There was profound military advantage that Sardis had because of where it was geographically located. It was so fortified that the term capturing Sardis... The phrase, capturing Sardis, became synonymous hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth. It became synonymous with doing the impossible. So it was a euphemism. It was an idiom. It was a phrase that they would have in in and around their culture here in this part of the world where if you captured Sardis, you did the impossible because it was so heavily fortified. It had such a decisive military advantage, and it grew and expanded, and it grew and expanded down into the valley. And in this picture on the lower right-hand side, you can see some of the ruins of part of where those living in the valley would have built their dwelling, and they would have had their um, inhabitation as well. And what took place was Sardis and its people discovered that there was tremendous wealth available. There was tremendous wealth available. Not only did they have a decisive military advantage because of where they were geographically located, they also had a decisive monetary advantage because the river they were located next to had gold floating in it. So just think about that for a moment. If you could walk to the local stream or the Potomac River and just see gold, that's an opportunity for wealth that's a bit unparalleled. And it became, as it expanded, one town essentially in two locations. 
And so the lower town, it flowed next to this, or it was settled next to this river. And Sardis was then the first city that historians have record of ever minting coins. So they took their gold, they took their silver, they, they melted it, and then they, they formed it in some way. It's all of the loose change that we carry around or maybe is still in a shortage in our world right now or at least in our nation right now. Um, we can thank Sardis for figuring out how that could function as a system of currency and for the trade and bartering of goods. Sardis even claimed to be the ones that discovered how to dye wool. And so they would have discovered that certain roots, if you boiled them down, you could extract certain colors from them. And then you could put wool in those colors and no longer were your coats white or the black sheep black. They were dyed different colors. It's interesting, Lydia in the book of Acts, um, I believe she was from Thyatira. And she was a seller of purple goods. More than likely, Thyatira, who I think you skipped last week because of the snow, uh, more than likely, Thyatira figured out how to dye wool or bought their dyed goods from Sardis. Because these churches were just geographically located next to each other. And Sardis was a profound city. To quote the eminent philosopher, Ron Burgundy, they kind of were a big deal. And they knew it, and it was their downfall. And part of Sardis' history is bound up and characterized and decisively formed because they knew they had wealth, they knew they had military fortification, they knew they had some good things going on, and it became the downfall of them. And it's that idea that Jesus actually writes to this church about. Now, this church would have been hundreds of years prior, or after, I should say, to the two decisive military defeats that Sardis had incurred. It was only a couple decades after a major earthquake came through and wrecked Sardis more than any other of these seven churches or cities in this geographic area. But so decisive were these defeats that it was a part of Sardis's history. It was a part of their legacy. It might have actually characterized part of the church. And there's an interesting thing in just reflecting through all seven of these churches in Revelation that if you know a little bit about their history, you can see that what Jesus has to say to them is tailored to some of the either strengths or weaknesses that they have as a part of their history. It's part of what made them unique as a city, and it's part of perhaps even what characteristics the church might have taken on themselves. And at times, Jesus gives them comfort, and he commends them for things, and at times, he confronts them for things. And so last time we were here, the last time any of us were here, uh, we looked at Pergamum, and there is a very specific statement that Jesus makes about the altar of Satan. And it's an altar that existed that was massive. It was probably about the size of this room. And so Sardis is no different. And the things that historically characterize them become a part of what Jesus writes to them. The church seems to have taken on some of the flavor of its city. And there's some good reasons for that. And there's some ways to be cautious in regards to that. And if you have your Bibles, let's look at Revelation chapter 3 and 
think through a little bit of what Jesus has to say to this church and by extension to us. And to the angel in the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we're not going to have time tonight to figure out the seven spirits of God or the seven stars. This is language that showed up in chapter 1 when Jesus is being described by John. John's writing what he sees, and he is then hearing Jesus use these same descriptors of himself later on. I think if you want to write it down, I think the best way to understand the seven spirits of God is to look up Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. There you have the Spirit of God, who we would understand as the Holy Spirit, being described in seven different ways. It's probably an, an idea of the completeness, the number seven being a reflection of completeness. And so that's probably the closest that I think we could get. But Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. There's an authority to Jesus. Same things that we saw in Pergamum. When he comes and he says, I have or I know, there's an authority that he's speaking with. And so he's the one who has the seven stars. He's the one that has the seven spirits. And there in the latter half of verse 1, he says, I know. <clears throat> I know your works. Now, those two words can provide tremendous comfort. And they can provide, at times, a tremendous wake-up call. And they're a wake-up call for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. They're a wake-up call for those who, as we'll see in just a few words from now, think they're alive but are actually dead. But they're also a tremendous comfort to those who were a part of, say, the church in Smyrna, where there was actual persecution that was taking place and believers were being dragged into the city square and putting put into amphitheaters and being devoured and killed and having to lay down their lives because they were unwilling to surrender and recant and say that I, I don't follow Jesus anymore, it's too costly. And so when he comes and he says, I know, there's tremendous comfort for those that are walking with the Lord in the midst of however hard those days might be. But there's also a wake-up call for those who may not be like the church in Sardis was not. And Jesus continues, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have the reputation, Jesus says. That word reputation, it's, it's, could be translated name. And depending on what translation you have, the word name probably shows up a couple more times in this passage. By count, I have it showing up four different times. So again, let's think through Sardis as a place in history, as a real people with a history and a characteristic and a culture. They thought that they were a bit of a big deal. They had unparalleled wealth. They had unparalleled military fortification. They thought they mattered. And the church seems to have taken on some of that cultural understanding. And Jesus says, look, you think you have a name. You think you have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. This is one of those moments that the words of Jesus saying, I know, should provide tremendous, tremendous uncomfortableness in all of us, because he's the one who has the capability of knowing, 
He has the one with the authority to speak. And here he's reading their mail. And he's reflecting on who they think they are, but who he actually understands them to be. They thought they were alive, but they're actually dead. The word alive could just mean um, spiritually alive. It could mean even what, what Scott was reading earlier from the Gospels, where the Pharisees thought that they were alive. And Jesus says, look, Isaiah, he, he wrote about this in his day, and it's apt for you in your day. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You think that all of the activity you have going around you and all of the things you do when you gather and all the pasta dinners and all the thousands of dollars you bid on cheesecakes and all of these things that they somehow in and of themselves decisively matter and speak to life. But you've got it all wrong. And in this first movement, Jesus confronts the church in Sardis and he says, look, you have this understanding that you're alive, but you're actually dead. You're actually dead. There's, there's death where you think there's life. Now, let's try to just think through this in a modern context for a moment, because this could be the local church that is making a tremendous impact in their society and in the neighborhood in which they find themselves and wherever it is that the Lord has placed them, but they've surrendered to culture. They've surrendered truth. They, they've decided that, you know what, God's, God's word might say this, but that's just too uncomfortable of a truth to say ourselves. But we look at all the good we're doing. Look at all the water bottles we hand out at the local parades. Look at all the parks we're cleaning up. Look at all the ways that we're out and around town serving and doing all these things. I mean, in, in that sense, the church is really no different than just a local club. There's nothing distinctive or decisive about what that church is doing because they've surrendered truth. And they might think they're alive by evaluating what they're doing and the works of their hands and all the actions and things that they're a part of, but Jesus might say to them, no, you're actually dead. That's what he says to Sardis. You, you think you have this reputation, this name for being alive, but you're actually dead. This could be, in, in, in some ways, I think this has been a part of Waynesboro Grace's history at certain points in time in its history, that, that we, uh, we, we, we took a lot of pride in all of the activities that we had, but what we were never willing to talk about was the undercurrent of relational strife that was going on. And if you got a little bit deeper and you, you looked a little bit more beneath the surface, you saw that we probably weren't as healthy as we thought we were. But we'd point to our church calendar and be like, well, look at that event. And look at that event. And look at how many things we're doing. And look at all the ways we're doing this. And look at how many people showed up here. And, and look and look and look. And, and then you, you kind of crack it open. And you, you peer beneath the surface a little bit. And it's just not as healthy as the calendar might indicate that it is. You think you're alive, but you're actually dead. Now, I want to tell you about the two battles that Sardis lost because I believe it's actually helpful for us to understand what Jesus is going to say next to Sardis. The first movement that we saw in verse 1 was that there was a confrontation of Jesus. Jesus confronts the church, and he does so honestly out of grace 
and mercy because he's going to instruct them to repent. He's going to tell them, look, if you've got ears to hear, do what I'm telling you to do. Like, time has not left you yet. There's still an opportunity. That is his grace and his mercy on display. But there was two battles that Sardis lost decisively. The first one, I believe, was about 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. So we're talking like 700 B.C. or so. And if you think back, just in your minds, we don't have to put the picture on the screen. If you think back in your minds to the mount that Sardis was founded on, it, it, it was a fortified military place. You were king of the hill, and you're the champion, and nobody's getting up. And there was one road in, and there was one road out, and that was the same road, and you probably had to do the excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, if you found yourself walking across the road at the same time with somebody. And invading armies found it incredibly difficult to lay siege against Sardis because they could never get close enough to the top to make an impact. They were always just trying to get their spears or their arrows or whatever aspects of modern warfare they had at that point in time in history to make a dent in this city that was built on top of a cliff. But what happened was that one day, one of the soldiers in Sardis lost his helmet, and his helmet kind of tumbled down the rock face a little bit. And I imagine the soldier kind of peering down and going, well, didn't see that one coming. And he begins to scale down the rock face. And he retrieves his helmet and he scales back up. The invading army saw this happen. And they go, well, if he can do it, we can do it. And so they probably got their CrossFit guys, and they're probably like, hey, it's time for you to go scale the wall. And they got their best, and they just went up, and it probably wasn't a whole bunch of them, and it was probably a whole lot of guys who knew how to climb really quietly, and they did so. Now, that's not what captured Sardis. That's not what conquered Sardis. Here's what conquered Sardis. When those guys got up there, everybody was asleep. Everybody was asleep because they believed they were so protected. They were so fortified. We are impenetrable where we are because of the hill that we're on top of. We, we can go to bed. Like nobody has to stand guard. Nobody has to stand watch. And so those guys crept through the city. They opened up the big door that was at the end of, or at the top of the one lane in and one lane out, and they let all of their buddies in, and Sardis fell. Sardis fell. About 300 years after that, it happened again. And I don't think the helmet experience was repeated, but the invading army was trying to figure out, how do we get up there? Can't make it, can't can't lay siege against this massive wooden door that's their gate that's protecting them, can't get there, they're repelling us because they've got the high position, they're the king of the hill, the whole deal, and they grabbed some of their best guys. They climbed up the rock face, and when they got to the top, they found that everybody had gone to sleep, and it happened a second time, some 350 years apart. 
So I'm always amazed by just history in that regard. Like those two battles happened at, 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 greater, at a greater interval than the history of our nation. So have we forgotten a few things at the year 2022 that might have happened in 1776? Yes. So let's have a little grace for them. But they found everybody sleeping. And they walked through and they opened the gate. The army came in. And I would submit to you, and I have four words that I want to put up on the screen here, that what takes place in this progression is that Sardis probably began with some tremendous confidence. In some ways, the city of Sardis probably began with some tremendous confidence. If we circle back to the church, the church probably began with some tremendous confidence. And confidence in that regard, I think, is best expressed by the expression, we can do this. We can do this. The church probably had quite a beginning where people heard the gospel and they placed their faith and trust in the gospel and they're going to plant a church in Sardis. There's never been a church in Sardis before. We're going to plant a church in Sardis because we love Jesus and we have tremendous confidence that if God is for us, who can be against us and the gates of hell are not going to withstand the church as it goes forward because Jesus has said, I'm going to build it. And they began with tremendous confidence. And confidence is worked out in a dependence on God and an interdependence on one another. Confidence, if we wanted to put a physical picture to it, is you and those a part of your church on your knees linked arm in arm. If you want to put a physical posture to this idea of confidence, it's on your knees linked arm in arm. Like, we can do this. Because we're going to be dependent on God and we're going to be interdependent on one another. There's nothing that God will call us to that he will not equip us for. There's nothing that he's going to lead us to that he will not provide for. We can do this. Well, you get a few of those victories under your belt. Confidence can give way real, real quick to arrogance. And the difference between confidence and arrogance is confidence will say, we can do this in dependence on God and interdependence on one another. Arrogance is going to say, we got this. We got this. Like, we've, we've been down this road before. We can, we got this. And what might actually begin to give way is the posture of being on your knees linked arm in arm. We yield a dependence on God and an interdependence on one another because we might have had some victories in the past and our confidence has given way to arrogance. Well, left unchecked, Arrogance, which is expressed through independence, is going to give way to apathy. Apathy is just going to be the idea of, ah, we don't really need to do anything, right? Just lazy is what apathy is. I'd rather watch Netflix or Disney Plus than be on mission. 
I'd rather you fill in the blank with what's appropriate for you, but yet you have apathy. Churches can be apathetic. Churches can become lazy. Apathy is expressed through laziness. It's really the idea that we have, we have no need to be watchful. It's probably the guys before they went to bed, the watchmen before they went to bed. Like, we don't need to stay up all night and watch our city. Nobody's coming up that mountain. Apathy gives way to atrophy, and atrophy is death. And that's where Sardis found itself. Jesus says, look, you guys think you're alive, but you're dead. Like, you think you have this confidence, but it's given way to arrogance, and your arrogance has led you to apathy and laziness, and your apathy and your laziness has led to the fact that you're just, you're just dead. Like, there's no life in you. Perhaps it was the watchman then, right before they laid their heads down, they were like, ah, we just don't have a desire to be watchful. And their atrophy led to their downfall. The first movement in this chapter, this postcard that Jesus writes, is his confrontation. The second, then, are the commands that Jesus gives them. There's several of them. I count five. We'll look at them here briefly. The first is to wake up. And Jesus tells John to write that word in such a way that it's the idea of of really what an alarm clock does for you and I in the mornings. Like we're sleeping, we're snoozing, we are blissfully ignorant to the world around us. And then the alarm clock comes screaming into our ears with a piercing, gut-wrenching realization that, oh, this has got to give. And in the mornings, it's, I got to get up. Like, that's the idea here. Like, Jesus is wanting this church to get the sense that he's coming in with the piercingness of an alarm clock when they find themselves asleep or dead, and he's coming in to say, wake up, church. Wake up. You think you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up. And the first command that Jesus gives them is to Wake. The second is to strengthen what remains. It's just try to firm up, refortify, if you will, to provide some support and establish some things to make what remains strong. Strengthen what remains and what is about to die. So the church is teetering between apathy and atrophy. An atrophy left long enough will eventually lead completely to death. They're not there yet, though, and Jesus in his grace and mercy is speaking to them, and he's wanting to pierce through the arrogance and the apathy and the atrophy that they find themselves with, and he wants them to be roused to wakefulness and strength. And that's our third command in verse 3. Remember then... Think back, Jesus says. Think back. Think back to what you received and what you heard. In many ways, Jesus is saying, I want you to to go back to the beginning. I want you to go back to those early days. 
when you were that little church plant and, and what, what was it that, that I called you to and what was it that gripped your hearts and what was it that you were willing to give your time and your treasure and your talents to and what was it that you were willing to pour your life out because you were so captured by this gospel that I came and preached that you were willing to move from city to city and you were willing to do all, whatever it took so that everybody could hear. Remember what you received and what you heard. Sardis, in some regards, forgot. They probably began with a lot of confidence because they saw a lot of good things taking place. And their confidence might have given way to arrogance. It at least did in their geopolitical military history. But where they find themselves now is Jesus is saying, look, you're dead, but not completely. There's a little bit that's about to die, and I want you to remember those very first things that you heard and that you received and that became the very bedrock foundation of everything that you were going to build your life on, everything that you were going to build your church on, everything that mattered so much it was willing to leave every other thing behind because of this one thing, this gospel thing. Number four, Jesus then says, keep it. Don't stop. Now, I've already quoted Ron Burgundy. I'll quote Journey. Don't stop believing, right? I don't get to do those things in my church. <laughs> they just probably would, I shouldn't say that if any of them are watching. Don't stop. Keep it. The fifth is to repent. The fifth command is to repent. There's this continual invitation, if not command, that exists before the believers that is no different than the invitation and the command that exists before those who are not believers. And it's to repent and to believe in the gospel. And it's not that we get saved every time we do that. It's not that we somehow lose our salvation and we've got to go back to the beginning and we've got to be born again, again. No, like that's a one-time deal. But what it is is that it's an acknowledgement and an invitation and a command by Jesus to say, look, no, no, like I've identified some things in your life that are not right. And the invitation that I have for you and the command that I am giving you is that you would acknowledge that and you would turn and move in a different direction. Because the way that you're aiming at, the way that you're walking now is the way to death. It is not the way to life. You think there's life down that road, and there's not. You're actually more dead than you even realize. And my invitation, my command is that you turn. Well, in some ways, those commands, they don't really get happy yet because the third movement in our passage, which is the second part of verse 3, is what Jesus says the consequences will be if they just ignore what he said. If you will not wake up, if the alarm clock's not going to do its job and you're just going to continually hit the snooze button and you're going to go, well, today's the day I can sleep in and skip work. If you're not going to wake up, I will come in like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come 
against you. My mind goes back to those decisive victories that the enemies of Sardis had against them. Those watchmen that should have been guarding their post and should have been sounding the alarm and should have been the first to fire whatever munitions or weapons they had at the guys climbing the rock face. They, they surrendered their fortified position as the kings of the hill because they were sleeping. And Jesus says, look, you guys aren't going to wake up. I'm going to come in. And you're not going to know when I come in. You're going to be a lot like those enemies that invaded you some three, four, seven hundred years ago. And I will come against you. Well, verse 4 gives way to a commendation. It's the fourth movement in this passage. Because not everybody had gone to sleep. Jesus says, yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus gives a description of the people who he says will walk with him and who are worthy. And I would submit to you that that, that, that interplay of what Jesus is saying has the idea of that there's people in Sardis that in not soiling their garments are still walking in purity. There's a purity to their understanding of the gospel. They haven't confused the gospel with other things. There's probably a purity in how they're living their lives. They haven't allowed different voices and different cultural opportunities or expectations to creep in and, and murky the waters. And because of that... Jesus says, they'll walk with me. There's going to be a level of intimacy that I have with them because they've not soiled their garments and they are worthy. Now, to be worthy is the opposite of being unworthy. And in some ways, I think this bears some similarity to an Old Testament idea of being clean or unclean. And when you're unclean, you're not allowed to have proximity. And I think Jesus in saying the idea here of worthy, he's saying, look, there, there will be proximity. The ones who haven't soiled their garments, the ones who haven't surrendered, the ones who haven't given way, they will walk with me. They will walk with me in white because they're worthy. And in verse 5, we have the fifth movement of this letter, this little postcard. There's a promise of eternal blessing. And the very things that Jesus in verse 4 said about the consequences and the commendation, he follows up with in verse 5. To the one who conquers, the one who has victory. That's the one who doesn't surrender. That's the one who wants to walk in confidence and not arrogance and not apathy and not atrophy. To that one, he will be clothed in white garments. I will never blot his name out from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels." 
Now, in every one of these letters, at the end of each of them, in the part that follows to the one who conquers, I believe that these are eternal blessings. But they bear resemblance to, and they're familiar with, what it was the church had struggled to do before, or maybe where they had erred. So let's think back to the beginning, because the church in Sardis thought they had a name for being alive. And Jesus says, no, you don't, but you, you follow me, and I'll, I'll give you a name that will never be struck from the book of life. Like you think you're alive, but you're not. But here's my invitation, and here's my command to repent. And if you do that and you walk with me in purity, you'll have intimacy with me. You'll have proximity to me. And eternally, you will have a name that will never be struck from the book of life. You will have a name that I'll confess before my Father and the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's another Old Testament allusion where oftentimes the prophets would say a similar phrase. And it's in Isaiah chapter 6 where Jesus has commissioned Isaiah. He's seen a, a vision of the temple and the question resounds, who will go for me? Who will I send? Isaiah, after seeing the angels and hearing the antiphonal cry of holy, 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 back and forth, and he, he, he said his sin is atoned for, and he goes, I'll, I'll go. I'll go. And Jesus then commissions Isaiah for his ministry, and he says, you're going to go and preach. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And Jesus himself quoted that several different times during his ministry as well. I think the danger in looking at a church in Sardis is thinking that it's not us. And that's kind of the point, is that Sardis thought it wasn't us. But if we're a church in Waynesboro and Brunswick or churches that lead with confidence, that tackle hard things with confidence, that walk in steps of obedient faith with confidence, we can do this. Like we can do what God's called us to do. But how often can confidence just give way to arrogance? In the sports world, it's reading your press clippings. It's having an awesome game and reading about what the sports writers said about your awesome game and deciding, I don't have to prepare as hard for my next game. It just gives way to arrogance. I got this. We got this. We can figure out the building thing. We got this. It's different than we can do this. It's different than having a posture of being on your knees and being linked arm in arm together. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. Like our, our, our fights, not with the weapons that the enemies tried to lay siege against Sardis with. Like our, 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 our fight is with prayer 
It's in dependence on God, independence, interdependence on one another. Unchecked arrogance will lead to apathy. It'll lead to atrophy. It'll lead to death. And it's not what Jesus wants for Brunswick. It's not what Jesus wants for Waynesboro. And there's an invitation and a command to repent. Perhaps the danger in a book like Sardis or a letter like Sardis is thinking, that's not us. That'll never be us. And I would submit to you, it'll only never be you. It'll only never be Waynesboro if the posture we fight for, if the posture and the attitude of our hearts is that we are desperately dependent on God and desperately interdependent on one another. That on our knees, we are linked arm in arm. Unstoppable. Can I pray with you? So God, when we fight, we want to fight on our knees. Their hands lifted high. Because the battle belongs to you. And every fear that may try to grip our hearts and stop us from walking in obedience to you or walking in faith into the unknown areas that you're calling us into, we want to lay those down at your feet. Because the battle belongs to you. And so with, with, with confidence, we want to be dependent on you, interdependent on one another. We want to not forget what we first heard, what captured our hearts and enraptured our affections for you and led to and stirred a, a, a life that responded with, here I am, send me. Here's everything I got. It's yours. God, help us to not think we're alive when we may actually be dead. Let me pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.